All right, good. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the last session of the 25th Century Workshop Balance. I am sending you invitations to be panelists. This way you can see, be seen, ask questions a little bit easier. Um, we are happy to see you. We are also live on Facebook as well as on Zoom. So if you are joining us from Facebook Live, welcome. Um, everyone is strongly encouraged to make use of the chat function if you are on Zoom and also if you're on Facebook. Um, both chats will be monitored. Um, if you do not, if you are on Zoom and you would like a little less chat activity, I will post instructions as to how to semi-mute it uh, shortly once class gets underway. Um, it's been a pleasure seeing everyone here for the first to last three classes, and let's uh, end it on a good note with Revenit Sarna and Revenit Wolkenfeld. Thanks, everyone. Okay, good to see people back again. Um, I uh, will just shout out to last week's class, and I hope some of you got a chance to think about um, automation in your lives. If not, we're going to talk more about that this week, but, um, but that was um, something we started thinking about last week. And um, I, I can share, I told everybody at Sarna, right, that I have a, a follow-up story to last week I shared that Safaria had sent out an email in Israel on Shabbat. So maybe that was a cliffhanger for all of you. Um, Safaria subsequently sent out an apology email and we got a response from someone in Hebrew who wrote, don't worry, my computer rests on Shabbat because I turn it off on Friday and then I don't, don't turn it back on. And I don't care that a server sent it out to me when it was Shabbat because I didn't read it till after Shabbat anyway. So that was a very beautiful ending to that story. And you're welcome to share in the chat if you had any reflections. Um, coming out of last week, and Ruby and Sarah, you didn't you didn't share a story yet with me, so I have I have a follow up, which is that yeah. on Friday of last week, I needed to send an email to Australia, and I said to myself, <laughs> "It's Shabbos in Australia. I'm not going to send it. I'm going to wait until Monday Shabbos." Amazing. So yes, any of your um, any of your. Uh, you know, time zone, working across time zone issues, feel free to put them in the chat. We did get an interesting email reminding us that time zone is like not exactly the right word for what we mean. We just mean yes. like differences in when the sun rises and when the sun sets or something like that. There's not a great word as far as I could tell. Um, but Judith, I appreciated your, your email. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Because the important, right. Because all of China, for example, is like one time zone. So that is wrong. Um, Totally. Yeah. There's a lot that can get complicated there, um, as was pointed out. And so you guys can all feel free to put your stories. Alana starting us off with smart lights. Smart lights, really. Um, oh, and a from Dallas in a Boston job. Oh, that's that's a few hours. That seems doable, but a few hours. Um, what that's a two hour difference? Three hours? Yeah, something like that. One hour? Two. Definitely two, definitely at least two, because I'm in Chicago and Chicago to Boston is an hour. Oh, maybe it's also on Central Time. Dallas is also on Central Time. Okay, never mind, an hour. Um, okay, so keep your, oh, that's also true. Keep your, keep your stories coming. I will focus our conversation um, on more, more carefully on automation. We kind of started talking about it last week. We're gonna dig into that a little bit. And the core concept that we're gonna use to set up our conversation for this time is the idea of Shvitat Kelim, which 
we mentioned, I think, Reverend Sarn, I think you mentioned, I think you introduced it um, kind of in passing last time. Uh, we had a lot of sources last time. I feel like we're much more reasonable this time, um, much more realistic. So um, Shvitat Kalim is, is like some of these other issues that we've looked at, like Lufne Iver and like uh, Amir Lenokhri, right? It's just one of these core issues that you want to be able to get at and you want to be able to understand in order to dig into this particular piece of Hilchot Shabbat. So I will share my screen. Okay. Um, so Shvitat Kelim is actually presented in a series of Mishnayot, or what later comes to be called Shvitat Kelim, um, is what is presented in a series of Mishnayot in Masachat Shabbat. I, we just put one small piece on the sheet for you, but um, of course you can always open Safari if you want to read the rest of the Mishnayot. Um, so this is from the first chapter of Mishnah Hay, but again, it's part of a series. So you can't, um, oh, the mission of the translation here gives a little intro. Okay, fine. Um, this is where the actual translation starts. Um, so you can only soak dry ink in water and dry plants, which produce dyes in water and vetch for animal food to soften them in water on Shabbat Eve, adjacent to Shabbat. Um, if there's time for it to happen while it's still day. So you can, I don't know, I'm not really so much in the dye um, examples. I'm thinking about this in terms of like, you know, cooking maybe would be similar, right? So you you start a process on Friday afternoon. Beit Shammai says you need to give that process time to finish before Shabbat starts, which of course it's going to depend whether it's summer, whether it's winter, what part of the time zone you're in as previously noted in all those comments. Ubeit Hillel Matsirim. Ubeit Hillel says, nope, it's totally fine. You can start it on Friday, on Friday afternoon, on Friday late afternoon, as long as, long as you start it before Shabbat. Um, their continued soaking on Shabbat is fine. That's Beit Hillel's position. And again, this basic machloket repeats itself again and again um, throughout, throughout this series of Mishnayot. The Gemara discusses a similar example. Um, there's a similar example in the Mishnah, but the Gemara quotes quotes a Brita, quotes a piece from the Tosefta. So here's what the Gemara has to say: Podkin mayan lagin So this is a Brita. Podkin mayan lagina erev Shabbat im chashecha. When we tmalitz v'halachet kol yom kula, that the you can you like open a a canal into a garden before Shabbat starts, and the the canal is going to keep filling. Basically, you're going to be irrigating your garden sort of continuously all day long, but you started it before Shabbat started. And you can place incense under clothing, under things on Shabbat, even though it's going to keep going. I like this. Uh, it keeps incensing um, all day long. Um, Oh, this is supposed to be gofrit, tachat hakilim, Arab Shabbat, im chashecha, umit gofrin vahochlin, kol hashabbat kula. And same with um, with coals. You can put coals um, or sulfur under things on Shabbat. Again, these are all things that are going to start on Arab Shabbat and they're going to keep going. And there's a few more examples here that I won't go into having to do with refuah. These are all processes that you start Arab Shabbat and they keep going on Shabbat. Aval. Here's the plot twist. Ready for the plot twist? But you can't put 
um, wheat into the the water mill thing that grinds wheat, um, unless it's going to be done that day. That's a process that you have to finish before Shabbat. Um, so the Gemara, of course, asks why, like, what's the distinction between grinding the wheat and everything else? Um, because it makes a noise. You can hear the voice, the sound of it on Shabbat, which if we were to pause here, gives you this fundamental distinction. It's one thing for malacha to happen on Shabbat, malacha that you may be put in process, but you're not doing anything to make it happen. You just put it in process before Shabbat. You can think about your favorite example of this that does not involve incense or um, irrigating fields, because um, there are some more modern ones that we'll get to eventually. Um, you can put things in motion, but not if you're going to hear it being in motion on Shabbat, right? If it's going to impact your Shabbat experience in some way, then maybe not. Um, and then, Amarle Rav Yosef, No, maybe we should say that the reason you can't do it isn't what we now call hashmat, call it isn't because it makes a noise. It's actually a problem of shvitat kelim. So here's that term, shvitat kelim, that your, your things have to rest. I think last time, Rabbi Nitzarna talked a little bit about the, um, the issue of having your animals rest on Shabbat. So this is having your, your things that could do things, not do things on Shabbat, for lack of a better term. Tatanya uvechol asher amarti lechem tishmaro. The pasuk says that you have to all the things that I tell you, you have to keep. Um, a pasuk from Sefer Shmod. Um, the citation is in the English over here. And um, that is interpreted to me in Lerabot Shvitat Kelim. That includes Shvitat Kelim. It's an illusion, as the English says here. It's an illusion to not having your stuff do stuff on Shabbat. And then the Gemara goes back and forth a little bit. It's like, wait a second. Does Beit Hillel really think that? But like, if you really think that Beit Hillel thinks that you can't do Shvitat Kelim, it's a Deoraita, right? From the Torah, you can't, you, you have to observe Shvitat Kelim. You can't have your things automated to do stuff on Shabbat. Then it doesn't make so much sense. Um, the Gemara says, Mishum because they're not actually doing anything on Shabbat. So pausing at that point, it's like an interesting question. Can you think about things that you set in motion that do things on Shabbat versus things that just kind of exist on Shabbat? I was thinking about this in terms of some of our questions about keeping track of life, right? The things that sort of just keep going on their own versus the things that um, have some activity associated with them. Anyway, the Gemara goes back and forth a little bit more, and I don't want to spend um, too much more time on it, but Ultimately, after going through a few different examples, the Gemara decides, Mantana Shvitat Kelim Beit Shamahi, the low Beit It's actually the position, and this is where we land, it's actually the position of Beit Hillel, of Beit Shammai, sorry, that Shvitat Kelim is Deoraita. This is still a true story. Um, this is where the Gemara ends up. We assume that Shvitat Kelim, that not having your things do things on Shabbat, is a position of Beit Shammai. The low Beit and not Beit Hillel. And of course, we generally paskin like Beit Hillel, which would mean that this category of Shvitat Kelim is really off the table. And the Gemara gets into that a little bit, 
doesn't matter whether the thing is actually doing something on Shabbat. You can't put processes in place before Shabbat that are can continue to after Shabbat. And for Beit Hill, even if it's doing something, it's totally fine. This is the bottom line. However, Shvitzat Kalim doesn't exactly die there. Um, it comes up in halachic literature again and again. We're going to see a little bit of that um, because like, I think, well, we'll get to it, but I would say like on some level, there is this concern, right? Can you really have your things doing things in an ongoing way on Shabbat? And one example of that, okay, to skip to the modern period, but you've already seen this chuba a little bit last time. So here's a modern example of that, where we can test this definition of shvitat kelim. This is uh, the Chalkat Yaakov, or Freish, um, who we mentioned last time in Switzerland, um, writing about an answering machine. Um, an answering machine that you would, which is already old technology, but for him it's new technology, that you would set up before Shabbat to answer the phone on Shabbat. Um, so he starts out and says, who wrote about their smart lights? Oh, that was a lot, right? Um, maybe it's kind of like that, or realistically, he's not talking about that, or he's really talking about like a timer, um, right? Something like that. You can set things up before Shabbat. Um, isn't it kind of sort of like that? Um, and I'm reading the bolded parts only. So our issues from last time, even the issue of placing a stumbling block before the blind or helping people do something they shouldn't be doing. And even that maybe we don't have to worry about. Like, yeah, maybe a non-from Jew is going to call on Shabbat. But you don't really have to worry about that. Okay, as I wrote elsewhere, he's really not worried. It's like something that's automated. It's like uh, the equivalent of a vending machine. It's really not a problem um, on Shabbat. It's a baseline. It's a baseline to start with. But Rav Reich goes further and says, actually, maybe not, not so fast. If actually you need to do an activity, like a, a sort of analogous to the Mishnah where you, um, you, you set the dye to steep or whatever it is the dye does, or the breita, you open the faucet so the water is flowing, um, you do have to do some kind of action before Shabbat. Um, so he says, I actually think you shouldn't permit it. It's not like something that's just automated. It's not there all the days of the week. You actually have to do something in order to get it to work on Shabbat. So that's like part one, right? Like part one of his answer, of his actual answer is like, no, not so comfortable with the fact that you have to do something to get it to work on Shabbat that's different from what you do the other days of the week, right? You have to set it in motion. And then he adds, and this is the part that we'll really focus on for tonight, the chutzlazeh, like aside from this, right? you should be, uh, wise people should be extra careful. At this time when technic, technic is the German term that used to be used before the word technology was a thing. 
Um, so it's where the word that we, when we use the word technology, it's where that German word, it, it comes from that German term. Um, so it's, it's moving forward really quickly. Um, right? And it's possible that in the future, I think Rabbi Sarah said last time he foresaw Amazon stores, but you could basically have a store that just works on its own. And he describes it in detail, but you've already heard this, right? You could imagine. Um, basically, you could have some a situation where a store can run, you can keep your business open, um, all without technically doing any malacha. Um, and he says, if we're lenient because, hey, new technology, everything happens by itself, can have a, our smart home and our smart business and everything sort of working on itself. You're actually going to have a huge Chil Shabbat. Um, he actually, at the end here, mentions the Ramban that we saw, I think, two classes ago about... Um, Right, this idea of Shabbat of Shabbaton is meaning that right, you're you're not in an environment of work, you're not in an environment of things kind of happening, um, and so he says, yeah, like your business running, you're not doing anything. Everything's just being done by this machine that you set up in advance. It's identified with you. It's your business. It's running on Shabbat. Um, even without you, it doesn't count as Shabbat. Like, nice try, friends, but it doesn't really count as Shabbat even though you can technically get off with all these arguments about how it's not actually melacha. Okay, I'm pausing for your questions. I resisted the urge to watch the chat, but I think there was a lot that came in. Um, okay, Alana thinks that the idea that wise people should be extra careful is condescending. I actually, that's interesting. I kind of feel it was the opposite of condescending. And it's also like, who is he talking to? Like right. he's talking about himself. Like I am the chacham and I have to be careful in what I'm about to right. say. Right. I think it's like really saying, no, like we're all, like we're all like, but we're making this decision together is sort of how I feel it's like it equalizes the playing field. Right. And we got to realize that like this thing that we, like it, he's sort of saying, it could be a halakhically reasonable decision, but let's think about this for a second, guys. Let's think about where this is going to land us. And maybe we don't want to go there. I think there was some discussion about food in the chat and cooking specifically. Um, a little bit different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So with cooking, there's like all of these like extra considerations. Um, it does it does bear mention that like some people don't care about those extra considerations. So like let's say like uh, Ravavadi Usi felt that you could set your bread machine Arab Shabbos and have fresh challah out of your bread machine Shabbos lunch, um, which is like. That's like, like, yeah, we don't believe in Shvita Kalim. So like, amazing, you said it before Shabbos, Um, I know lots of people who set their coffee machines, as an example, to make, brew coffee for them on Shabbos, uh, Shabbos morning. Um, and we'll get to timers momentarily also. But uh, the other, the flip side of it is like, okay, can I set a timer for my cholet? Um, you know, like, could I, could I set a timer and it would just heat up my food? Um, and that there's all of these like other considerations about that are like food specific uh, that we're not getting into. So, um. right, food is a whole other class. Um, but I'm trying to think of a, I mean, a, 
like an old school parallel process that isn't agricultural. Whatever, you can adapt from the, the cases here. Okay, were there other questions? No. Yeah, okay. so in terms of like the noise idea applies to presetting TV and radio. That's real. 100%. I mean, yeah, that's exactly yeah. the conversation. The conversation is a hashmat hole, and but we know it's a darabanan. So then you get interesting questions like, I am stuck at home alone all of Shabbos because it's COVID, because I am a person who is stuck at home all the time, whatever. I'm very lonely. Shabbat is a very depressing time for me. Could I leave on a radio? Could I, whatever. Or like, I know like during the six day war, like lots of people left on radios in their homes or um, my parents, I, this is like a shout out to the people here from Boston, like the marathon um, bomber guy was still like on the loose. And Shabbos was starting and they were in lockdown and everyone like left a, left a radio on that Shabbos because like he was like, he was found like <laughs> like a mile from my parents' house. Um, and uh, yeah, so like there, there have been times when we're, we're more willing to like be lenient on the noise front for various reasons. Um, yeah. But yes, yeah. this is the reason why we're not just like, totally, you want to watch American Idol on Shabbos? Like leave it on. When, when, uh, when I was, I don't, I'm not sure how old, when I was little and I lived in Teaneck and uh, the first Gulf War started and there was a concern that America was going to get bombed and the official advice from all the Orthodox Teaneck rabbis was you leave your radio on in your garage. That was the thing. You left your radio on in your garage so that you wouldn't have the Hashmat call, but so that you could check periodically to make sure that God forbid. It feels related to some of those sources we saw about newspapers where it's like, you have to get it. You have to read the newspaper on Chavez. How are you going to know? Maybe there's a war and you're going to have to do something about it. Uh, so it feels like that, like a different kind of spin on that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Incense in your house. Just make sure you don't light your house on fire. Um, okay. Let's keep going. Yeah. Timer. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Here we go. All right, so this is a piece of our Rav Moshe Chuba to his um, to his grandson or Mordechai Tenler, um, and so he he's talking about timers. You're gonna hear this and you're gonna say, "Hold on!" But I set a timer for my lights every Shabbos, um, and it, this is a case. This Rav Moshe usually wins, just so you know. Like Rav Moshe usually wins, we usually go by Rav Moshe. This is a case where Rav Moshe lost, um, and like resounding. Um, but but I want you to see what he's saying because I think what he's saying is very important in terms of like what is Shabbos, how should poskim and people taking responsibility for Shabbos in these times of automation, in these times where like what is malacha anyways? Um, how should we be thinking about that? So here's Rav Moshe. He says, So by electricity. Um, so this is him describing, you know, use a timer and it's going to do like a, like a Torah level violation. So he says, use a timer and it's going to start cooking for you food that is going to go, um, that will be ready for you, um, like an hour or that it'll start cooking like an hour before your meal or something like that. Um, and then he says, um, it's my opinion, you cannot permit this. 
because by a timer, because it's with a timer, you could actually do everything um, that's prohibited on Shabbos. Factories in every factory. And there's no bigger degradation to Shabbos than this, right? That's where he really lays out his cards. He doesn't say it's Asr. He doesn't say, I think Shvita, I think I, I Paskin like Beit Shammai and Shvita Kalim. He says the problem is Yilzul Shabbat and what's going to lead to an automated factory just running on its own. I, I, I run, a, I own a factory that produces water bottles and all Shabbos long my factory runs without any human involvement. And now all of a sudden I can run my factory seven days a week. Moshe says there's no greater potential potential for Zilzul Shabbat than that. And, and my timer in my house is what's going to lead to that, right? So it's a little bit of like a slippery slope argument happening here. If timers that existed in Mishnaic and Talmudic times, they would have prohibited it, which is just like a phenomenal line, right? Like I, I adore that. Um, and this is where he gets to his halachic argument that um, that the same reasons why you can't just ask a Gentile to run your factory on your behalf are why you shouldn't ask a timer or Shabbos to uh, cook food for you on Shabbos. Um, and he says, yeah, and actually maybe timers are really prohibited because of Amir Akum, because of um, the sources that we looked at at some point last week, two weeks ago, I don't remember, um, about um, tell, about in- giving instructions to a non-Jew uh, last week. The Asru Israel, Israel, because he says the prohibition of Amir al Akum is like a Jew's gonna just tell you to do stuff and then you're gonna do it, and then the Jew's gonna come to do it because it's gonna be done for them on Shabbos. And he says, if you're not allowed to tell a non-Jew to do it, how much more so are you not allowed to effectuate it by something you're doing with your hands? Kul Shikin Nitzad Masai Hayisrael. Um, so that's the and the, the next paragraph is more of his argumentation about Amir Laakum. And then um, and then he says again, though, that exact same thing. Right. So he 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 digs back into this Ziluta de Shabbat, this degradation of Shabbat thing. So he has this halachic piece of automation is Amir Laakum. And, and when I first read this chuva, um, I don't remember how many years ago, five, six years ago, I was like, that's bananas. Timers are not Amir Akum. And then the more time you spend learning about Amir Akum, what's the problem with Amir Akum? Is it that you're telling someone they're doing something for you? Is it that you'll come to do it yourself? Is it that they're your shaliach, they're your messenger, and they're essentially doing it for you? Like all of those reasonings apply to timers. Like there's there's nothing, um, you know, like how, how, how often are you in a situation where like, shoot, the timer didn't work. I was relying on this light going off so that I could sleep. And now you're like, okay, like, 
how do I find a kid who's gonna do this for me or like do I whatever right like I just feel like that's such a common situation and like that's exactly what the rabbis were concerned about if you relied on a gentile to show up and do that for you and then the gentile didn't show up or something like that that you would come to do it yourself so when I first read it I was very skeptical about this Rav Moshe I've actually like really come around to it I do use timers just to be clear because like that's clearly become Minhag Yisrael to use timers on Shabbos but like I, I actually think it's like a really it's a chuba that's worth taking like quite seriously that all the reasoning that is behind the mural Akum is reasoning that we should be taking strongly into consideration when we're having the conversation about automation um, as well. Okay, um, I'm gonna stop and take questions for a second if there's anything. I don't know, Sarah, have you been watching? Uh, Rabbi you've been watching the chat. Is there anything yes, you should yeah. respond um, to? There was a question about. Um, why Rav Moshe lost, but the other rabbi won in terms of the automated future of Amazon stores. Yeah, um, that's a great question, uh, right? But we, but he didn't exactly win because lots of people use answering machines. So like practically he didn't win either. Um, right. Like the, the like beat Hillel camp of like, nope, your stuff can do stuff for you on Chavez even it, when it's electric, like that's really the prevailing thing. I think, I think the part that of Rav Breish that, that a little bit does win would be like, we were, if you said to me, I wanna, I'm gonna run my business in person six days a week. And on the seventh day, I'm gonna have a robot run my business. I would be like, huh. but I would do it from like a Shabbaton type of argument and not from a Rav Breicher or a Rav Mo, right? Like, or I would do it the same way that they tried to do it, of like, but even more so, I would say, don't run your business on Shabbos. Like it would be from a business perspective of like, you should not be making money on Shabbos. Like Shabbos is a time where we don't do labor, which we're gonna get to in a second. And not necessarily from this like technical perspective or from the perspective of like things that are in your house that aren't your work. And that yeah. I think is really where the halakha has landed. And we're gonna get to why momentarily of like, what's the difference between like my timer that turns off and on the light in my house or my timer that turns off and on my coffee pot versus the timer that's gonna run my business. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's where halakha like is and is headed. That the timer that runs your business is bad, not because of the timer, but because it's your business. Yeah, I think that's really the, the key distinction between what Rav Breish says and what Rav Moshe says, or, or why Rav Moshe loses, right? Like, because ultimately we've decided that like certain things in our homes, okay, but I actually think that, um, I think Rav Moshe can be credited for keeping, he's not the only one, but for keeping the idea of Shvitat Kalim kind of like on the books, even though he doesn't mention that idea, but um, you know, even I and even Reverend Sarna who use timers on Shabbat, but like we know this Rav Moshe, or you kind of have it in the back of your head. Like, oh, there is something there. So I think that's worth noting. Yeah, like his Zilzul Shabbat argument is the like slippery slope argument of you're going to come to run your factories on Shabbat. And that piece of his argument stands. Um, even if we reject the slippery slope from my timer in my living room to my factory. Yeah, but the, it would be Zilzul Shabbat were I to run my factory. That that part I think does kind of stand. Yeah, interesting question about if you shouldn't be making money on Shabbos, why does Shul still auction off honors? But I think that's not business, or not quite in the same way. 
Yeah, it's not business. I mean, and right, it, it's staka. Um, and it's a very ancient custom, right? So like the first time I saw it, I didn't grow up with it. First time we talked about this in the first yeah. class, the second class, yeah. right? Like the first time you see it, you're like, whoa. And then you dig into the history and you're like, this is a very ancient custom. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a little hard to like be hating on it. <laughs> okay, let's keep going a little bit here. Unless there's anything else that's been coming in. No, okay. All right. So here's the argument for why this like malacha as professional work is, it, or like the thing that's prohibited is professional work. So you can run your timer, but if your timer is running your business, that's a problem. Here's where I wanna make an argument for, for that distinction. And this is not an original argument. Um, or my Linzer makes this argument a lot, which is where I first encountered it. It's not really an original argument to him either, though these are the quote that he uses to promote that argument. Um, but um, um, I would say like Rav Nachum Rabinovich um, is a big proponent of this argument, for example. Like, and this people who are trying, people who feel that it comes up a lot in like the electricity discussion of like, electricity is is becoming more and more something we have to encounter on Shabbos because um, it does more and more in our lives and in our homes and so like if I'm turning a doorknob and at the same time like something in that doorknob is like changing color or something does that mean I can't turn the doorknob or does it mean like yes I can because like that light that's changing is an LED it's not generating any heat that's not making a fire. There's all of that electricity stuff is just about preserving Chavez and opening doors is something we do on Chavez. Whereas if that same electricity were running my business, that would be a problem because we don't do business on Chavez. So this is where they look to as kind of the origin of that. So um, so this is the classic Mishnah Shabbat of the Avot um, and I'm not going to go through that, but if you are not yet familiar with this Mishnah, strong recommend. Um, but they, but the idea in bringing it is just that it'll set up what's to come a little bit. Um, but basically on Shabbat, we have Avot Mu'achot, which are 39 primary categories of prohibited labor on Shabbat. And then each of these Mu'achot, um, each of these Avot have subcategories under them. Those are called Toledot. And then underneath those subcategories, we sometimes even have, and those subcategories are still Torah level prohibitions of Shabbos. And then underneath those subcategories, you'll have rabbinic prohibitions, sometimes called a shvut, for example, um, which are like protecting you from violating any of those Torah level ones. So you can think of it as like this three levels of a system. Um, it's not exactly that neat, but that's how you can think about it a little bit. And they're organized according to um, professional activities. So if you're a baker, you have first, well, how do you how do you bake bread? First, you have to plant your wheat and you have to plow your field and you have to um and you have to reap your field and you have to um and then you have to gather the stuff that you reaped and then you have to thresh it, winnow it, separate it, grind it, sift it, knead it, and bake it, right? So that's the sidura that's called sidura de pot, the order of making bread. Um, but Okay, so that's that's that. And then we have the next one, which is, okay, I I am a weaver. So first I have to get my wool off the sheep. And then I have this whole process by which I turn the wool into thread. And then 
I, and then from turning the wool into thread, I, I then um, have to attach that thread to a um, loom and then I have to weave it. And then I have, uh, oh, and I have to dye it at some point in that process. Sorry, I skipped that one. And then I have to, and then I weave it. And then after I, oh, and, I, and then, then after I weave it, I also sew a little bit. Um, and maybe I do some tearing in order to sew some other stuff. Okay, and then I have, uh, now I'm a scribe. So I have to first, I have to first trap and then I have to take the skin off the thing that I trapped. And then I have to do all of this work to turn that into something I can um, write on. And then I have to like make it, uh, and I have to cut it up. And then now all of a sudden I'm writing on it and then I'm erasing in order to write more. And now I'm a builder and I build and I tear stuff down and then I make fire. So I, I put stuff out in order to make new fire. And then I am, I finish all my labor by smacking a hammer on something else. Um, and, and then you have like a few, then you have a Mozimir shoot, shoot at the end, which is then after I finished making it, I carried it out of town um, and, or out of my property. So those are the categories of labor, but they're organized into these kinds of like professional sets. And we'll, we'll see that again in the Yerushalmi soon. But the Yerayim has, um, has a discussion about um, like, how did they decide what counts as work or not? Uh, what do they decide? What do they, how do they decide what counts as avot melachot? How do they decide, right? We have this whole mess of prohibited activities that are called melacha, but some of them are avot, some of them are those primary categories, and some of them are toledot. Some of them are the secondary categories. Um, and how do they make that organization? So the Uranian says like this, Amrina b'shavis parak metonin, so it says um, in Masachah Shabbat in a chapter called Bamet Tumen, Hani Avot Malachot Keneged. These primary prohibited categories of Shabbat, who do they correspond to? Amar Bichanina Barchama Keneged Avodat Hamishkan. So Bichanina Barchama points to the beginning of last week's Parsha, points to the beginning of Parsha Bayakal, and set where, where we have three Psukim about Shabbos, and then we transition straight into building the Mishkan. He says, we oh and, and it's and we have the prohibition on melacha there. Um, and he says we learn what melacha is from all the different labors involved in the creating of the mishkan. Um, Rabbi Yonatan ben Elzar Omer Hayarushim ben Yosi ben Lakaya Omer Keneged melacha melachut shabatora arbeim chaserachad. We have the second opinion that says count of all the times in the Torah that it says melacha um, or melachut. And that will get you to 39. So, um, and there are each, you can, you can accept both of these because they're not exactly um, contradictory opinions. It's like, how do, I, right, how do I know how many Libras they did in the Mishkan? Oh, well, they did 39 because I got to 39 from counting up the times that Malacha appears. And that's how many Libras in the Mishkan I went searching for. You could also read them as disagreeing. It's fine. It's either way, however you want to read it. Um, but the array of it, says that he goes on to say, but there's still this like kind of creative process that's being described here on behalf of the rabbis. They know what malacha is prohibited, but they're making these avod and tordot. And how do they decide which is which? Yerayim says, ra'u chachamim hamelachut hadomot, I think there's a missing lamin here, hadomot la'avodah. So the rabbis looked and said, these are the activities, these are the actions that are similar to work. 
So work that is close to, um, sorry, melachot that are, uh, I don't know, activities. Okay, sorry, I'm butchering this translation. Activities that are similar to work, those are the ones that are called melacha because, and we know that melacha avodah go together because we have this verse, melacha avodah, don't do melacha avodah, don't do laborious work. Vamrinan iluhen sheikpida Torah, we have to say, these are those that the Torah was strict about them. Because the verses were only given to the sages. They decided that these ones, the ones that are similar to the labor that people do, um, to work that people do, those are the ones that are called malacha. So what the Urayim is saying is that when the rabbis wanted to come up with this system of like what's called malacha, they looked around and they said, okay, I like hear all the different jobs that exist in our universe that people do on non-Shabbos days. That's what we're going to call Malacha. Like that's what, that's how the Urayim is describing it. That Malacha was actually defined by the work that people were doing, by the jobs that people were doing, which means that if we're going to take a, a piece out of like the Rav Moshe book and say, if the stuff today were around that was around in the time if the Morim and Tanim were around today, what would their Ilum Milachur Arvaim Chaserachad look like? What would their 39 Avom Lachot look like? It would look like this is the person trading stocks, um, working in a bank, sending emails, um, right? Like they would take like all the work that a banker does and then all the work that a I don't know, they would take like a few different main, they would divide up all the work that Jews typically do and they would break it down into individual activities and say, these are the 39 Malachu. And they would take a few different ones. So you'd have, you know, someone who's a banker and someone who's a doctor and someone who's a, um, a lawyer and someone who's a teacher and someone who's a something else. And they would, someone who's an artist and they would say like, these are the things that they do to make money. Those are all prohibited. Here's a person who runs a store, fine. Um, and we see just like such beautiful evidence for this from this amazing Yerushalmi. So Rabbi Yishmael ben Osha, Rabbi Yochanan ben Bruga says, Hatovim should be Yerushalayim, dyers, people who are professional dyers, Hayu osin schita malacha atma. They would treat the act of squeezing, the act of squeezing out, ringing, as a category of its own, of it, uh, as a category of its own. Which is amazing because schita is prohibited on Shabbat, squeezing out, ringing, prohibited on Shabbat. Um, but we call it dash, so it's under the category of threshing. But Rabbi um, Shmuel, the son of Rabbi Yochanan ben Bruka, testifies that in Jerusalem, the dyers, when they counted their thirty-nine, <laughs> they included schita as part of it because that was such an important piece of their professional lives that they like elevated its status almost. They didn't just say, oh. When I'm doing this to my cloth, that's dash. Because dash, that's something that uh, someone who's involved in the bread making process does. But tzchita, that's a different activity that someone who's involved in the clothing making process does. Um, so here we see that they that that different professionals, there's a time period where different professionals held up different kinds of work as more important than, than others, um, than what's reflected in our classic Mishnah that lists out the, the, the 39 Malachot of Shabbat. So if you imagine this, then it's actually 
yeah, the teachers who like, I don't know, do all the stuff that for other people they would never do. Teachers who like, I don't know, like decorate stuff on the wall or something like that. That would be an avmalacha for, for an elementary school teacher. But for someone else, it's still prohibited, but they wouldn't count it as like a primary prohibited category. Um, whereas for them, because that's like a normal part of their, their you know, in between classes is hanging stuff up. That would be like a main thing that they would think about as not doing that on Shabbat. Um, and I want to wrap up this piece of what we're saying with um, an article by or by Berman, and I'll put a link to it in the chat after um, or after we look at just this section of it. Um, but he has a kind of another argument for why it's really important to um, think about melacha as productive labor. And his argument is that that's really what Shabbos is about, um, says Roy Berman. So Roy Berman says anytime he has this like big, uh, someone once said to me that like our, you know what the, the like previous generation, I mean, obviously Roy Berman's still alive and writing and thinking and all that, but um, what his generation, they like these like big picture ideas about Judaism. And now everyone like does these narrow things. So one of Roy Berman's big picture ideas that he really spells out in this article is um, that when you have things that are temporarily prohibited. So not pork would be something that's always prohibited. When you have temporary prohibitions in Judaism, and there's quite a lot of temporary prohibitions in Judaism. So think about like most of the year I can eat leavened bread, but like eight days of the year I can't, like that kind of thing, right? Um, so the point of, um, here, so I'm at the top here. The point of temporary prohibitions is to compel withdrawal for the sake of evaluation, withdrawal for the sake of evaluation. All activities banned for fixed periods of time are essential to the normal conduct of life, but constitute only a part of the proper relationship in which they are acted out. The temporary prohibition is designed to compel us through awareness of its absence, to evaluate the activity, to renew our consciousness of the total relationship, and to place the prohibited behavior into its proper context. So any behavior that's, that has a temporary prohibition associated with it, that behavior is just one piece of like the good life. And sometimes, very commonly, we think about pieces of the pies of our lives and one piece has kind of like overtaken all the other pieces. Like, oh, I used to exercise, but like then I just started working so hard that I don't exercise, I didn't have time to exercise anymore. Or like I used to sleep, but I don't, <laughs> whatever. Um, and, um, and so he says, when we prohibit something that helps us evaluate, is it taking up the right size of the pie of my life? Um, and then he says, okay, let's think about Shabbat and our relationship with productive activity. Um, and he says in contemporary society, productive activity is extremely important, not just because of the output. It's not just like, society needs clothes, I make clothes, how important. But actually a non-productive citizen is not only a failure in societal terms, like someone who doesn't have a job, we think poorly of that person, um, but he is also psychologically injured person, lacking a sense of identity, which seemingly only being productive would provide for him. So, and then he goes on to, to give examples of like, when you meet someone, the first thing you find out about them is like, oh, what do you do? Oh, you're a doctor this. 
oh, oh, you're just a mister. Oh, but you're actually a lawyer. Okay. Um, right. That are like obsession with like, what is your profession? Um, it is, is very, very strong. And what that means then the implications for someone who doesn't have a profession or is out of work or is transitioning, or even sometimes um, in, in our times, like stay at home moms sometimes experience this as well. Um, that's sort of like, oh, I'm supposed to have a profession and being a mom isn't enough for anyone, something like that. Um, it, um, it, it has this, he has a great, he has a great, I think the language of psychological injury um, is, is a really, it's really strong, but probably also warranted. And so then he says, what's the point of Shabbos? Remember that the productive piece of yourself is only one piece of the puzzle. So it can lead to the recognition that productivity is only one aspect of identity, which must be properly placed within the total relationship of the individual himself. But this consciousness does not imply a withdrawal from thinking about productivity, right? It's not that on Shabbos, we don't, um, the fact that we're not doing malacha means we can't think about the fact that humans do malacha. He says the opposite. If anything, the consequence should be an intensive grappling with the question of what the proper role of productivity is within the broader identity of the individual. Um, and he, as an example of this, he, he suggests elsewhere, like some people think like, oh, I'm fasting on your kipper and then I spend the whole day thinking about food and that's terrible. But he says, no, the opposite. You're spending the whole day thinking about food. That's really good. Put some thought into like, does food take up a unusual or like unwarranted amount of space in your consciousness. Like the fact that you're not eating on your kipper is a time to think about the space that food takes up in your life. Um, and then he, he suggests writ large, the question becomes whether the Jewish community as a result of its communal experience of Shabbat becomes better able to value people and honor them for their quality as Jews and as human beings without making their productivity the central measure of quality. It says Shabbat is an opportunity for us to challenge ourselves, to see people as people with all sorts of other traits and values and qualities beyond their professional activity. The fact that we don't do our professional activity at least one day a week is super important because that's when we remember that we're humans outside of our professional activity. And that's extremely important, um, says Red Bertman. So he says, yes, Shabbat is all about refraining from our professional activity, just like um, the dyers in Jerusalem said, yes, like, and here's this, this prohibited piece of our activity, and we want to like really raise that up, call it an Az Malacha, because um, we don't do this stuff on Shabbos. And Rabbi Berman says, yeah, we don't do it on Shabbos, and here's why, because your professional activity isn't your whole everything about you, and that's a super important piece of Shabbos. I think there was uh, a lot of discussion. definitely some questions. Um, yeah. Mostly clustered. Let's see. Working, I think, scrolling up and then working down. Um, I think um, Abby and Adam had some concerns about the idea that the authority is given to the rabbis to determine the rules. Um, and how does that work? Oh, it was just Adam. Sorry. Your names are together. Um, so, um, yeah, is the Ram saying that Chazal had the authority to decide which 39 activities are the categories of Malacha, or is he saying that Chazal had the authority to decide what is or isn't Malacha at all? If the latter, why are we deriving them from the Mishkan? And then like, okay, if it's not literal, which of the 39 did they downgrade? Yeah, well, that's a great question about like, how does Torah work? Um, I think you could read the Ram in multiple directions. Um, some ways that are like very like traditional would be like, no, no, like 
what he, all he's saying is that like we had we knew it was all malacha it was just they decided what's an av and what's a tulda that would be like a very easy way to read it or you could say no i mean and, and I, I think the more straightforward way to say Ryan is that they sat down and said okay like what is work cool <laughs> um which which like me like when you read the Torah and then you, if you just read the Torah and then you read the Mishnah, you'd be like, I don't understand how this got here. Um, and I don't understand how we arrived at this. Um, and that's, I think, what the Uriam is trying to like bridge. And they're saying, yeah, there was like a lot of rabbinic action involved there. Um, but certainly you can read it in lots of ways. And there are ways that are more and less comfortable to read it. I definitely agree on that front. Um. Yeah, um, Alana called the fasting analogy before you even got there in the text. Um, so I gave her a shout out. Um, uh, Ozzy says that if, if Rav Asher Weiss feels that something's forbidden on Shabbat, but can't figure out why, he puts it under the category of Makeba Patish. Okay, I feel like that's a topic for He's another. not the only one. Yeah, that yeah exactly. <laughs> Feels like that's a topic for a whole other shear. Like all the What is Makeba Patish? And how do things <laughs> discuss? When yeah. you have a hammer, everything is a nail. I was going to say something similar, like, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll call that class if I had a hammer. Um, um, yeah, fasting. Oh, let me put it. You're going to put the link to the Rayburn article. Great. Yeah. This time, instead of trying to upload the PDF, which didn't work for people, I just put it in my Google Drive. Um, so hopefully that should work. Um, okay. Okay. I'm going to bring it home with the last piece here. Um, Wait, I'm going to share my screen again. Um, so we we wanted to cap it off with something that was about the positive vision of Shabbat, because I think you can see that that's where this is all headed, right? Like per the example of the dyers in Jerusalem or this idea that we like value people for their jobs and we don't want to do that on Shabbat, right? There's some idea that there's a construct of Melacha, there's a construct of the things that we do during the week and Shabbat needs to be not that. Um, and you, you probably all know, well, you for sure all know if you had like a pandemic Shabbat, that if you just don't do Malacha on Shabbat, it's like not that exciting. <laughs> like it's, it gets old fast. Um, and you can be keeping like, you know, every whatever, but you're just, you're not doing Malacha and it's like, oh, that was a little Shabbat. So there's a whole literature out there on what it is that we're supposed to feel on Shabbat. What is it we're supposed to be thinking about? We talked a little bit, um, I think it came up in our first class about like, well, if you're doing X, then you might not be learning Torah. If you're doing X, you might not be in shul, right? So there was a little bit of that. And um, we saw the Ramban on the idea of Shabbaton, wanted to kind of circle back to that. So this is a, it's an unconventional source a little bit. It's not from a halachic work, really. Um, this is the Pachad Yitzhak, Rav Yitzhak Hutner, um, in one of his articles about Shabbat. Um, and if you haven't read Pachad Yitzhak, I first of all, highly recommend. Um, and, but second of all, you should know, like, they're all, they're like long articles. There's like a lot there. So summarizing a little bit, but he is talking about the, the, this quote from the Musaf Amida on Shabbat, which I just, anyway, always like it when you can kind of like get deeper into Shvilot. So this idea, right, that it's in the, as I said, in the Musaf Amida, um, Shabbat, right, that, that paragraph. Um, and it's something like, you know, those, those who taste it being Shabbat, um, right, those who experience it, um, merit life. And so he has a whole essay about what this is talking about. This is, this is kind of from the, the end. 
הזכייה בחיים מתייחסת היא להרגשת הטעם של השבת עצמה. So what's the relationship between life and like tasting Shabbat? Like why do you merit life if you taste Shabbat? So he says it's because you're going to get life just from, just from feeling the, the, the way that Shabbat actually feels. That's also in this quote that you've chosen, there's been greatness chosen, and you've chosen greatness. In order to really choose Shabbat, in order to really um, get, like suck the marrow out of Shabbat, as it were, um, you have to, you, you have to be in this place where you love the, you love the things of Shabbat, right? You love keeping Shabbat in a sense. Um, so he's referencing this idea that you get an extra neshama on Shabbat. Perhaps you've heard this idea. Everyone gets an extra soul on Shabbat. And he says, yeah, like that's, that's the essence of Shabbat. And that's what it is you're feeling. You're feeling more you-ness on Shabbat. I think that really goes along nicely with Rabbi Berman's idea that like you're sort of not distracted by the externals. You're more about who you are. That's the blessing of Shabbat is feeling more of your selfness. That is actually the essence of Shabbat. That's sort of what it means, he's saying, to have a neshama yitera. Um, he said that already, he repeats himself sometimes. You're gonna, you're gonna uh, merit life on Shabbat because you feel the time of Shabbat. But I don't think he's talking about like, you know, it's not like a prescription for a long life. It's not like a vitamin. Not that you're gonna live longer. Um, you're gonna feel more alive. And you're feeling more alive as a result of this neshama yitera, but this neshama yitera comes about because you're embracing, I think he's talking about the restrictions, but also the mitzvot aseh shel Shabbat, right? If you're embracing all of that, you have to choose a Shabbat experience, and that's what gets you the neshama yitera, and that's what gets you this feeling that you've really gotten, you're enlivened, I think we would say in English, by the experience of Shabbat, but it has to be about, um, about choosing that experience. It can't just be, you know, skip the don'ts and you're good to go. Um, and so that's really where we wanted to leave you with this. And I think that also addresses the question about the Rabbi Breish and, um, and Rav Moshe conflict before, right? Like, um, yeah, maybe you can have your plata and eat the hot food from it too. Um, but we're going to have to draw the line somewhere when it comes to actually running a business on Shabbat. Right? We're going to have to really think about what are the things that just enhance my Shabbat experience and all the things that we know we want to have happen on Shabbat like food and meals with friends, et cetera, versus what are the things that are going to actually detract from the core Shabbat experience? Um, and Judith is saying, we should stop asking people we meet on Shabbat, what do you do? I'm, I'm that that. totally what Rabbi Berman says. You should yeah. read the article. I think you'll like it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Stopping for any last questions as we wrap up. And this is also a time, if you have, this is a, the end of our series. So if you have questions about like, the general project that we've tried to take you on, um, which is this question of like, in a world in which my average workday involves exceptionally little melacha, what does Shabbos, what are the prohibitions of Shabbos that might feel more salient than ever? And now this, and what do they then open up also? Um, that's been the big project. Um, and so people have kind of questions about, about that. Um, I think this would also be a good time for anything in that direction.
yeah, a lot of nice ideas in the chat. So the mm -hmm. office family said, maybe we shouldn't identify what people do as their jobs all seven days of the week. For sure. Yeah. You also, I don't know, do like bigger or talk to your friends or read great works of literature. And like, that is also something that you do. Um, well, which literature, which literature is a, is a subject of debate? <laughs> right. Saying. No, but you do it the other days. Oh, right. Oh, the oh, other day. Right. Sorry. I thought you said on Shabbat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the final hammer blow has to do with achieving mastery over something. Shabbat is showing that we don't have that mastery. I think that's a really strong read as well. Um, mm -hmm. Right. What did you cook for Shabbos? That's right. <laughs> Lots of good Shabbos icebreakers. Um, right. What did you cook before Shabbat started? <laughs> yeah. 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 But I definitely, I do think that the Rabbi Berman piece is a great, Alana, <laughs> mm -hmm. are you looking for an invite? Um, Alana's a great cook. Um, um, I, I do think that, that, that the challenge of like separating Shabbat and using Shabbat as this moment to separate from our professional lives, particularly when so much of what we do professionally are things that we end up doing on Shabbos also, um, actually refraining from like discussion about our professional lives as maybe a way of living out the Veritavar, some of the things that we've talked about here, um, could be a really meaningful addition to our Shabbos. That was sort of what prompted us to teach this class was all the work from home. All the work from home. Arrest these, but not the measurements, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Leave them guessing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't share that on Shabbat. Uh, any last words, Armani? Uh, no, this has been super fun. I'll give a shout out to Drisha, thanking you, um, Ravini Sarna and Kayla for making this class happen. And it's always super fun. And um, I am not so up to date, but I know that Drisha has a million other great classes now and always. So you should check those out. Yeah, I think Kayla is going to tell you about them yep. right now. We have two classes coming up, starting up, coming up soon. Uh, starting this week on Thursday, we have a new class class at from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, The Invention of the Seven-Day Week with Dr. Ezra Zuckerman-Sivan. And in this current time slot on Wednesday at 8 p.m., we, um, we will have Dr. David C. Kalman starting his class, Working Knowledge, Labor, and Jewish Thought, next Monday. You can find out about, find more details about this class as well as links to sign up on our website at grisha.org classes.